When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Curioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 207, The Valleys Rising. I hope you enjoyed the episode last week. I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was a unique take on uh, Owen Glyndwr, and uh, I hope you uh, will check out the podcast Anthologies of Heroes, uh, as I think it's a very well done and quite clever podcast. So, with all that said and done, welcome to 2024. For those of you listening to this when it's released, I can't wait to get started. And today we're going to start by talking about the valleys just north of Cardiff, which, of course, in the industrial beginnings of the Victorian period, see a massive change in their makeup and in the way they are looked at. They will have consequences on Wales as a whole and on Britain as a whole for the better part of a hundred years. And for Wales, they still influence things even today from TV shows to music to any number of different things, including accents and quite a number of perspectives that have come out of the valleys, which are so different or so unique to them themselves in some ways and in other ways, representative of Wales as a whole. The rising tide of industrial production at the beginning of the 19th century saw local hamlets, villages, and rambling areas of agricultural isolation rise from relative obscurity into major industrial powerhouses of the century. Local tradition holds that around 480 CE, a girl called Tidful, daughter of a local chieftain named Braichan, was an early convert to Christianity, who was then murdered by either Welsh or Saxon pagans and buried in the town. The girl was considered a martyr after her death, and Merthyr translates to martyr in English. The tradition holds that when the town was founded, the name was chosen in her honor, and a church was eventually built on the traditional site of her burial. Of course, this would lead to the town being called Merthyr Tidfil. For most of the next 1,000 years, however, very little happened in the area. There wasn't even so much as a scrap of a building left after the end of whatever was supposed to have happened, and it eventually fell into the hands of the Normans through their domination of the marchers, and remained in that time period fairly pastoral. 
Yet, as time went on, industry activity began, and ironworks were developed near the parish, which existed at that point in the Elizabethan period, but it did not survive beyond the early 1640s. Again, the use of the area was more of for sheep than for people. In 1754, it was recorded that the valley was almost entirely populated by shepherds. Farm produce was traded at a number of markets and fairs in the area, notably the Juan Fair above Douglas, and a few other events would happen there and thereabouts, but there was nothing really going on. The valleys were still as meadowy and pastoral as ever, and there was very little sign, at least in the 18th century, that this was about to change in any significant manner. However, as the need began to be for more iron ore and coal and limestone, which were all discovered in this area, it began to become the ideal location for a relatively new ironwork industry that was leading the British Industrial Revolution. So, over time, this sleepy pastoral landscape, I realize I've said this a lot, but you have to image it, began to change and migrate into what we know today. In 1759, the first major ironworks, Daules, was founded. Other works, including the Plymouth, Caifatha, and the Pandaren works would follow in quick succession, and Merthyr Tidfil changed in that moment from what had been into something much more towards what we would think of as more modern. It saw more and more businesses seeking to build their fortune in these communities through the development of all of these industries. Under the ownership of John Josiah Guest between 1807 and 1852, Daules rose to international fame as the largest ironworks worldwide, employing 8,800 workers and producing 88,000 tons of iron each year. By 1820, Merthyr was producing 40% of Britain's iron exports, while in the second half of the 19th century, many of the works converted their production to steel, as obviously steel became much more in use and considered a more quality product than straight iron. In 1790, no high street existed, or what we would consider in North America and elsewhere as market squares or commercial districts, in Merthyr at all, and at that point it was still just a collection of houses with an inn and a pub. It would be the wars of Napoleon that would actually force Merthyr into the spotlight for the first time, as the need for iron was growing exponentially to meet the needs of the military, as you can imagine, and thus creating a demand for places like Merthyr to provide it. As a result, the rapid expansion of industrial production and mining activities the population of Merthyr increased dramatically. The 1801 census recorded that 7,000 people lived in the area, and by 1910, just over 100 years later, Merthyr Tidfil had almost 90,000 inhabitants. More importantly, for much of the latter half of the 19th century, it was the biggest community in Wales, and was highly influential on Wales because of that size and because of the flow of both immigrants and emigrants in and out of the location. At the same time, of course, not only did we have the rise of that, but there was a need to build 
construction that would help to get this iron out of Merthyr Tidful and then eventually coal, and thus there was a need to export it through the various ports that were nearby, one of which, of course, being in Cardiff. So in order to deal with this, in the 1790s, they started to build a canal, which would be completed in around 1794. It was considered extremely difficult in building because of the difference in height as far as the elevation and having to bring it up and then down in towards the sea level made for a lot of tricky developments and a lot of locks being created to sort of deal with this. But it was absolutely fundamental to the early growth of Merthyr Tidful before the steam engine and the rise of trains in the latter portion of the 1840s. At the same time, the birth rate also blossomed as climbing scientific advancements and better health care, thanks to wider varieties of food sources and just generally a different attitude about what was causing problems for people, meant that childbirth was becoming safer. Still not safe, but definitely better than before. Thus, a lot more children were surviving into later childhood and adulthood than had ever done in the past. This, of course, has good points and bad ones, of course, because you have an increase in population, more survival of children, but you also have an increase of population, which can mean higher demand on areas and having to create a lot of infrastructure to deal with this, some of which Wales was not prepared for. This meant, of course, that we, as we talked about previously, many people from inside and outside of Wales were moving in for these opportunities, which were coming out of Merthyr Tidful, specifically in mining and in ironworking. And this started to blossom the community. This was creating pressures on society, both those that were already in Wales and those who were new to Wales. This conflict of values started to change how the Welsh viewed life in general and how it started to affect the overall attitudes about a number of things that previously had never been considered. Welsh life had largely been rural and conservative. Industrial and urban pressures were bringing something into Wales that really hadn't been seen in a very long time, probably not since the Glyndwr revolts and the popular struggle that preceded it. There was a rising sense that had begun in the lower classes that moving into cramped urban environments with hard labor jobs and a sense of communal resistance began to some of the aspects of those jobs and some of the expectations on how life was to work. And all of these attitudes were starting to form in a period where a number of different pressures were coming to people across a number of different areas. Some would blame the French Revolution, at least initially, for some of this because there was such a dramatic swing in the way people thought about the monarchy and about aristocracy that came out of that. But that's harder to describe or harder to look at and evaluate completely. Certainly there was an effect, but I wouldn't say it was a complete one and it wasn't a dominant one by comparison. It was this idea that the French Revolution would create more revolutions like it, that there was a demand to revolt. And of course, this could be seen in places in Europe where the powers that be had either been pushed out by Napoleon 
or had ran into financial and other struggles and were having to put themselves back together in the aftermath, something that would create a number of different problems for all of the countries involved, but Britain had largely avoided that. There was no real threat to English dominance, either in its navy or colonial power. If anything, it had grown in the absence of the now-conquered French, and the entire sequence may have been frightening for the powers of B, but few could say that the fires of revolution were burning bright in Wales in this period. This was more of a problem of, say, the intelligentsia in London than it ever was with the Welsh population, which was generally not of that mindset. It, however, did not mean that all was well, and largely this was being pushed by the change which was happening across Britain entirely in the way life was structured and in how it was dealing with the consequences of these massive changes in environment and in the industry that was creating it. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Working hard industrial days were very different than those of the farm or the sea, where you'd spend a lot of time around a lot of different people. Obviously, on sea, you would have your shipmates that you would discuss things with. In the farm, you would have a family or maybe some community members around you that you would have time to gossip or share some ideas with. But the reality is that those were fairly small. This was no longer the case in a new and industrial Britain. You would spend a lot more time around others, both at work and critically after it as well. 
communities were now bunched and tightly packed, and because of that, it became common to congregate more. On market days and in pubs, drinking and debating was a growing pastime. The more people talked, the more people complained. Instead of taking in a few family members and, you know, getting them irritated with you because you won't shut up about what the king did or, you know, the local lord was making you unhappy or the taxes were a little too tough. Now you were complaining to people who also did your job, also understood, and they were starting to feel this growing sense of frustration about the conditions, about the pay, and importantly, the difference between the workers and the owners. This idea was being exacerbated by the growing separation, by the movement of people around Britain, and you have so many outsiders with different ideas coming in and are starting to spread these ideas to others. You have some people who have ambitions that are growing beyond what their initial position is, and they aren't happy with their circumstance. You have others who believe firmly that those above them have been earning too much and gaining too much while they don't gain enough. Capitalism in Britain may have brought wealth and opportunity, but the discussion now was as to whose wealth and whose opportunity. To go along with this was, as mentioned previously, a growing literacy that was allowing more and more people to share ideas and for these ideas to spread amongst all classes far and wide. Merthyr and the Valleys were heavily influenced by this change in the community, and as the community continued to grow, so too did the sense of unity. Everyone was doing the same thing day in and day out. You spent your time in the mines, the industrial sites, and other places, and spent more and more of it working and less and less enjoying your time to yourself and to your family. As I said, this kind of thing was becoming a powder keg, and it may not have been fully understood, but within 50 years, Wales and Britain in general would certainly become all too familiar with the consequence of it. One of the side effects in all of this was that the industrial era created a concept where you worked all year long, whereas in the old agricultural provisions, you would take breaks over the winter. Certainly you would have jobs to do, but the growing season would have ceased, and though you would have to take care of livestock and do those kind of roles, for the most part, you had more time to yourself, and over the winter, you had more opportunity to develop family relationships and to spend time with each other, and as I said, give you the break that you needed from this work, this heavy labor. There's no such thing in an industrial society that comes to an end and the concept of working all the time becomes important and thus it creates some of the issues that are very familiar to all of us such as you know how long do you work what is your work week look like how are you treated while you're on the job what is your safety on the job what is the expectations of the owner and of the employee and all of those things start to become debated in this era, because now all of a sudden, instead of being responsible to maybe a lord or just to your own family, you're now responsible to a series of management and owners above you who may or may not care about your circumstance or situation. And now you have all of these familiar problems to deal with 
but they're familiar to us, but they aren't necessarily familiar to these people. At this time, of course, strikes were starting to grow. The idea that being able to stop work and protest the way you're being treated had become something that was growing more and more common. And because of this, both the workers and those in positions of power were having to deal with the consequences of it. As I said, the work days were hard and long and the mines were hot and dangerous places in which to work. And this included going as far as children who would be forced or at least expected to work in these periods from ages that certainly would seem nonsensical at this in this day and age, but at that time was very common. Child labor was not considered unusual. In most cases, it was considered to be expected to be done. Thinking about the fact that apprenticeships would start at the very edge of preteen years, and most children would go off to work for a master, you know, between the ages of 11 to 13, there wouldn't be what we would consider to be a normal childhood because there wasn't an education system to sort of work in between work life and home life. And all of these things were putting more and more pressures on everyone and creating stresses and creating unsafe work environments. And the consequences were severe. In industrial factories, there were a number of incidences which would happen, such as people being expected to get in between machines and move different pieces to try and get the machines working. And of course, that would create injuries. There would be the consequences in mines, of course, of, you know, if there's a cave in or if something happens or if there's an explosion, all of which can cause massive problems for everybody involved. And we'll certainly be talking a lot about all of this in future episodes because this will become a constant problem. And to kind of finish off the episode for today, in a way that makes a lot of sense to us now, even though they're working at these places, even though they're struggling in these factories and in these coal mines, wages had been slashed when the price of food was also rising sharply. And this was creating hungry families with no money in their pocketbooks, with expectations being pushed upon them at a higher and higher cost, both in worker expectations and in financial expectations, that they were slowly driving workers into more and more desperate measures. Criminal activity was becoming more common. Problematic situations were growing. Areas in Merthyr, for example, became abandoned because as workers started to earn money, they would end up moving away from an area which was closer to the ironworks. So you would have that smell of sulfur and different things coming out, and that would influence where people wanted to live, to no surprise. And as they abandoned these buildings, they weren't like torn down or anything. Other people started to move in. Other people had different ideas about how to earn a living some of which were criminal activity, and that started to create more and more problems in the community as that would continue to grow. And as the population continued to grow, there was more and more of this kind of situation going along. The This then would lead in 1816 to a strike that started at the Tredegar Ironworks as groups of men marched towards Merthyr 
stopping all of the furnaces along the way. This then became a riot as they approached the Daules factory, and they were confronted by police, special constables as they were called at the time, and shots were then fired. Uh, Mary Morgan, the wife of an engineman at the Pendaren Steelworks, was injured in the fracas, and the crowd was furious because a woman had been injured, and the constables ended up fleeing to get away for their own safety, and the rioters went to take over the ironworks. This then created a worrying time for both the workers and for the owners. John Guest, the owner of these works, barricaded himself in his home, while William Crochet II, the owner of the Kafarath Ironworks, took to the hills to take refuge in a farmhouse. And in the end, troops had to be brought in to subdue the rioters. This is how things worked in this era. If people got mad, they didn't just, you know, grumble about it or protest on social media. They went out and went riot. And this will happen more and more. And probably one of the biggest ones that happened, or at least one of the more important ones that we all if you have any knowledge of this period of Welsh history, know about is the Rebecca riots, which come just a few decades later. And all of this comes out of the radicalization of the working class and the developments in the capitalist markets, in the leadership, in the owners, who more and more are concerned about the bottom line over the worker. And thus this conflict between worker and owner become more and more pronounced and it takes flight in Wales in ways that I don't think anyone expected or maybe thought would happen in a place which previously had been fairly docile by comparison to what it had been previously. And it will force a lot of reconsiderations about what Wales is, what the valleys are, and how influential places like Merthyr Tidful become to the larger British public. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope you're having a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, if you would like to help the podcast by helping me purchase the research material I use for this podcast, you can do so via patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have yourselves a great day. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.